This has been a summer and early fall of a number of weddings. I find it kind of interesting. Uh, back in July, we had Mackenzie Sharp that got married, and I think on this very same day, uh, Nick Beatty, young Nick Beatty, I should say, you didn't get married again, right? Uh, got married, and, and um, then in September, I had Rebecca Murata's wedding, and I just came back yesterday from Florida where uh, I got to officiate at uh, Teague Dean's wedding um, down on Amelia Island where Gary grew up. It was an interesting conversation that broke out as I was at this wedding, and the, uh, the conversation came up with some people saying, uh, wow, it seems like you really know this young guy. And, and the people were surprised, um, thinking that pastors really don't know the people, especially the younger people in, in the audience or in the congregation. And as I would say, you know, I watched Nick, I mean, uh, T grow up from the time he was a little boy. And uh, it was a you know, great joy to get to know his fiance and to do all of that. And they started asking, well, what kind of community is North River? And then what they didn't know is that's the question we were already raising behind the scenes that I've been wrestling with for a couple of weeks, thinking about this particular message. Because as we come to the, the fourth week in this series, the, the theme that was chosen out uh, by going through this study uh, was the word community. And so we're asking the question, what kind of community are we? What kind of community does the Lord want North River to become? What kind of community are we in the process of being shaped to look like? I had another thought that hit me as I was preparing for this message. Most people who've been part of North River for a long time probably realize that we don't shy away from dealing with difficult themes or biblical themes that inform the way that we look at tough issues of our times, uh, even politics. Nonetheless, we avoid doing politics from the pulpit. There are two reasons why I tend to avoid doing politics from the pulpit. The first is that God has people who are on either side of the political aisle, no matter what we think politically, and part of our job is to minister on both sides of that aisle. Another reason is that it would be very, very easy to use this as a bully pulpit and only address biblical themes that relate to political matters that seem clear to me while ignoring biblical themes that others see more clearly than I do. That's always one of the great challenges. Let me add that most people who do want me to address political issues want me to address them from the point of view that they hold and never from the opposite side that somebody else holds. Have you ever noticed that? That theme, that theme comes back to me again and again. Now, this determination does not mean that we are blind to political issues or that we never address them. There are some times when we probably would, like when a, a national crisis, such as an impending war, may threaten our collective safety. Think of the role that pastors played here in New England in the run-up to the American Revolutionary War. Another might be when the political climate threatens to lead us into spiritual compromise. Think of the way that politics led to the spiritual compromise of the German church in the 1930s, a whole decade before the United States got involved in World War II. On this particular Sunday, it would be very hard for me to avoid realizing that the theme that we chose several weeks ago connects with the strain that we are all feeling due to the complexity of the Kavanaugh decision and due to the dysfunctions that we've all seen on display within the U.S. Senate this week. 
for this reason, the theme that we are going to dive into this morning is very relevant because of the political strains of our society and the power that those strains have in sometimes dividing people, dividing groups of people, even dividing churches into factions, as opposed to God's goal for our church to become a community that operates with the same mindset, with the same love, and with the same spirit as we are led by Jesus. So this morning, knowing that in the back of everybody's mind, this bitter conflict that we've seen is still kind of playing out, I'm going to ask you to kind of do your best to to tune that out and listen to a different strain that's related to it that God is calling us to. Now, I know you can do that. I know that we can concentrate that way. You know how I know that? I have very severe tinnitus in my ears, especially in my right ear. And so every day I have to tune out the buzz that's, that goes on in my head. And it, it's kind of an interesting process. When you learn to do that, there are times when you can completely make all of the chatter, all of the distracting stuff go away simply by focus. I think there's something God wants us to focus on this morning that's more important yet still related to all the stuff that we've been tracking with during the week. This morning we're in the fourth week of this Living the Gospel series and the series explores several words or concepts that are key to living out the gospel of Christ in our world. So far we focused on three concepts. First, we talked about the city. We looked at Jeremiah chapter 29, where God told the Jewish people going into exile that he wanted them to pray for the city, seek the the prosperity and the peace of the city, because in doing so, they in turn would be blessed. He didn't want them to remain so distinct that they had nothing to do with with that region. Then we looked at the concept of the heart, and we looked at a, a different vantage point Uh, in tearing apart the prodigal son story. We looked at it from the lens of the father, and the realization is there that God wants us to have his heart, Uh, not the heart of the younger brother, not the heart of the older brother. They both fail in their their own ways, but the heart of the father is what he's calling us to. Then last week, we looked at one of the obstacles that gets in the way from doing that consistently, and it also gets in the way of us living out our faith consistently and it has to do with the idols in our lives. And so we had one of those really challenging uh, weeks in trying to dive into uh, where does idolatry come back into our day, knowing that it's far more subtle than it was in the Old Testament world where, where idols took the shape of images, but our idols more often are any good thing that we can take to an extreme that gets between us and God or that takes the place of God. Today we're going to take that one step further, and the word that we're looking at is community. It's the fourth concept. And this word prompts two questions. What kind of community would the early church become? As Paul is writing this letter to the Philippian church, that is part of what is in the back of his mind. What is is this church going to become, and, and what is God doing to shape that? And the second question is, what kind of community are we becoming today? So right up front, here's the big idea. When we are like-minded, humble-minded, and Christ-minded, we become a community that reflects Jesus to the world. There are three strains in there. When we become like-minded, humble-minded, and Christ-minded, we become the kind of community that he desires and that reflects Jesus to the world. Now, 
The first thing I want to talk about is the centrality of community. And part of what I'm doing is setting us up for many of us who are involved in small groups that are tracking with this particular study. Tim Keller, the founding pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, in, in the midweek study that many of you will, will watch this week, he walks us through a profound pairing of terms that are found in the Apostle Peter's first New Testament letter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. There it says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Keller notes how two biblical descriptions of the church, which appear side by side, lead us to re-examine the role of the church community in our spiritual development and in our mission to the world. First, he, he selected out the phrase where it says that the church is a holy nation. The word holy means uh, separate or distinct, set out for a peculiar purpose. Next to that, though, is another term where the church is described as a royal priesthood. Priests are intended to be mediators, especially in the Old Testament world, in the Hebrew world, mediators who bring people to God. Sometimes they stand before God offering the confessions of the people to God. Sometimes they deliver messages from God to the people. Peter tells us that every Christian then is a priest. Every Christian is a mediator to some degree. And to fulfill this role, we have to be deeply involved in the world around us. And so Keller makes this statement. We, like Jesus, need to be distinct from the world for the world. What he's doing is he's putting those two themes together, those two descriptions, to be a, a holy nation and a royal priesthood. And he says, we need to be distinct from the world for the sake of the world. That's the role that God calls us into. He then goes on to make three powerful observations, which we will wrestle with in our small groups. But I want to tease you with these three observations for just a moment. Here's the first one. You cannot know God apart from community. You cannot know God apart from community. Yes, God calls individuals to respond to his grace, to respond to Jesus personally. But when God calls individuals, he calls them into a community every single time. And it raises the question for you and me today, do we go through the routines of our lives where we're merely attending services? Or are you deeply a part of the community of Christ that God is forming here? The second statement that Keller makes is, you cannot change deeply apart from community. Our primary community shapes us at deepest levels. Think of the way that the family that you were raised in shaped your values, your outlook on life, whether you're an optimist or a pessimist, uh, all kinds of things that are shaped very, very early on as a result of the home we grow, in, grow up in, the community that we grow up in, all of those kinds of things. And then the gospel comes along, and the gospel changes individuals, but it only changes us really deeply and fundamentally when we do this in community. Keller cites this, pro this paradox. Gospel-shaped people are able to form deep community, yet only in deep community can we become gospel-shaped people. We're going to chew on that in our small group. So those of you who are meeting in the group that I'm part of, that's the statement we're going to reflect on a lot. Gospel-shaped people 
are able to form deep community, yet only in deep community can we become gospel-shaped people. And then here's the third um, statement that Keller makes. You cannot change the world apart from community. I cannot think of a better way to do this than by joining a small group Bible study. If you're a member of a small group, wonderful. We're a little bit nutty about that around here because we realize that life change most often happens best in the context of wrestling with God, wrestling with Scripture, within a group of people where we are challenged to look beyond our own initial insights and to see what other people see and to take this on more deeply. Realize that uh, a, a Bible study group that effectively does that becomes much, much more than a Bible study. It is possible to go to a Bible study and treat it like an academic class where you're just mastering material, but a really effective small group opens you up to different thoughts, different experiences. The small group becomes a place where we practice fellowship and create that sense of belonging. A small group, when it's healthy, becomes a place where we pray together and we begin to ask God to take us deeper in growth and faith and sometimes we share the things that are deeply impressed on our hearts with other people that we trust and we begin to care about. A small group is a place where we wrestle with the deeper, deeper implications of scriptures, not just for ourselves but for us as a group. And sometimes it's where we spur each other on to use our gifts and our abilities in serving as a team or serving others with the ministry we're a part of. So just in case you're interested, Todd Shimshak will be out in the lobby this morning. And he told me over the weekend that there is still room if you would like to, to uh, join a group. We have about 30 functioning groups right now. Some of them are couples groups. Some of them are uh, men-only groups. Some of them are women-only groups. But this is where God shapes us deeply. I'd like to return to Philippians 2, and I'd like to talk about some very distinct marks of gospel-shaped people. I'm stealing Tim Keller's phrase because it's, it's captivated me in, in studying for this. The goal is for us to become gospel-shaped people, where the good news is not something that we just believe up here, but where it shapes our lives and it shapes the way that we live. Four discoveries about this that are based on Philippians chapter 2. Number one, we are a community of people united with Christ. In Paul's logic pattern, in unfolding this second chapter of his letter, he starts with this idea, this concept of being united with, with Christ. He says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, this is the setup and the foundation for the arguments he's going to make next. His starting point is the position of being united with Christ. How does somebody become united with Christ? Are you sure that that's something that you have a hold of here this morning? The answer to the question is simply by trusting in the gospel of Christ, that Jesus was sent by God the Father to bring us into a new relationship with God himself that is based on grace and faith. God contributes the grace. The only thing that we contribute is our own faith as a response to the news that we discover. Specifically, our faith is in Jesus as our Savior, the one who paid our sins to bring us back into alignment with God's plan to reconcile people and to reconcile the entire world to his shalom, the richest, deepest kind of peace that is soul-satisfying and life-changing and all-encompassing. 
So every once in a while we ask the question, have you entered that state of being united with Christ? How does that happen? It happens when you and I humble ourselves to recognize that Jesus is Lord and that he has authority over my life and your life. It, it happens when I confess that my, my sins cause me to fall short of God's expectations. It happens when I place my trust in Jesus' saving work on the cross and in his rising from the grave to take away and triumph over my sins and over your sins forever. We are called to be united with Christ along with other Christians. So it's interesting that Keller says when God summons you into a relationship with himself, he also summons you into a community, and we become a community united with Christ. Here's the second mark of a gospel-shaped people. We are a community of like-minded people. That's a great phrase, to be like-minded. I haven't heard that a whole lot this week as I've been you know, watching all the political stuff that's unfolded. But what a wonderful, wonderful goal to be in the presence of people where we are like-minded. So verse 2 says, Paul is writing, he says, Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Like-mindedness does not mean that we share the same views of, of everything in life. We can have different likes and different opinions on many things in this life. When we come together to worship God, I really don't care about your political views. I'm rarely going to talk with you about politics at the front door, unless you and I have had a conversation going on privately and maybe we'll pick it up, but I'm going to shut it down pretty fast too. That's not why I'm here today. When we get together simply as friends, sure, I'll dialogue with, with just about any, about that, any about that kind of stuff, but my opinion is just about as good as yours. No more, no less. I have a good friend who always says, uh, opinions are like armpits. Everybody has at least one and they all stink at some point in time. <laughs> That's what I think of my opinion on this. That's what I think of your opinion on these things for the most part. We don't change anything with our opinions on these things. We, we wrestle with them. We're affected by them. I have a cousin who regularly lets me know that she's a Yankees fan. She loves in every email. She sticks that in there. I love her. I can be like-minded with her on most things, even though I can't understand for the life of me how she can be a Yankees fan. <laughs> Polar opposite opinions about sports teams don't keep me from being like-minded in Christ with somebody who shares that value. What does it mean to be like-minded? Being like-minded means that we share the same goals and the same values on the most important things in life. So as Christians, we value people who are different from us because they matter to Jesus. We value people who are from different ethnic backgrounds or who don't speak our language because they matter to Jesus. We value people whose skin color may be different from yours or mine because they matter to Jesus. We share alignment in regard to the mission of the church when we are like-minded. What is our mission? Our mission around here for a long time has been stated this way, helping people who are far from God become fully developed worshipers and servants of Christ. 
There are two parts to that mission. We recognize that every conversation that we have around here may also in involve some people who've stepped into our environment here on a morning not having been in church in five years, 10 years, or maybe 20 years. And so we want to have every conversation in a way that includes rather than tells people you're an outsider and you don't belong. That's why we try to speak in simple language, not overly churchy language filled with slogans and cliches and all that kind of stuff. We try to strip it away here. The back half of that mission is, though, that we're in the process of together allowing God to fully develop us. And almost everything that he asks us to do falls under the heading of worshiping him or serving Christ. We also share alignment in regard to the vision of the church. What is our vision? Uh, last several months, it's been on the front page of your bulletin every Sunday People who are being forever changed by the love of God and daily changing the south shore and beyond for Jesus. What is that saying? That we see ourselves as people who are radically changed because of the grace of Christ that infuses our lives, but that we are also trying to take that same life-changing love and grace of God wherever we go around the south shore and into the city and beyond wherever he would take us for the sake of Christ. That we are not just changed, but that we are changers because of Christ as well. That's our vision. Now, why is this important? The more that we are united and like-minded around essential beliefs and goals and values, the more we can tolerate and even appreciate our differences on secondary things. I think this becomes exponentially more important on a week like this than just about any other season in our lives. When what we see all around us is rancorous division and where friends can hardly have a conversation on Facebook without e tearing each other apart over this stuff, we need to highlight the things that are most important, that are highly essential. And they are summarized in our mission statement and in our vision statement. And they are compelling because this is what God is doing. So, while you and I may care about who sits on the Supreme Court of the United States, I want you to know I care far more about whether you and I are in, line, are in alignment with the goals and the missions of Jesus than I will ever care about whether you are in alignment with some political party. Are you with me on that? How can we say something like that? It's because Jesus witnesses within us through his spirit about the things that he calls us to and about the things that matter most deeply to him. And you know what matters most to Jesus? People, not systems. People, not organizations. People, groups of people, lonely people, single people, married people, people of all colors. He cares about people. And one by one, He's changing us, and he's using us to look at the people, not to get lost in the slogans and the systems. Here's the third thing that I see rising out of uh, this chapter in Philippians 2. We are a community marked by humility. And so Paul writes, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. 
The Apostle Paul calls us to live lives that are marked by humility. When we act in humility, we value others more than we value ourselves. It is not that we have a poor view of ourselves, but we learn to choose to view others more highly than ourselves. I've got this wrong at times in my life. There are times when I thought what this was telling us to do is to think very lowly of ourselves, but that's not what it says. Rather, it says we're to look at others and value them more highly than the way we, than we view ourselves. It means that you can have confidence in life. You can be sure about some things. You, you can celebrate the victories that come. But as much as we do that, we need to lift other people even more highly and value their interests even more highly than our own. I find that hard work. I find this the kind of humility that God is continually trying to show me because I can get very wrapped up in my agenda and my thoughts and everything that seems important to me, and I want to express that to everybody else. But when the Spirit whispers, and when I can even hear His whisper over my tinnitus, He's telling me, that other person is more important than you are right now. Can I use you? And that's what he whispers to you too. Paul also tells us about the opposite of humility. And so he uses this phrase, selfish ambition. Selfish ambition is where we serve our own desires regardless of the impact on others. It's the opposite of humility. Vanity or the constant need to pad your own resume or reputation in the ears and in the eyes of other people is also the opposite of humility humility. It's this self-promotion that's so much a part of our culture. I read a story this week from uh, a pastor in Pennsylvania, Tom Clauser. He tells the story of the ending days of the Civil War. It's April 1865, and the Civil War is coming to a close. Robert E. Lee has just surrendered to Ulysses S. Grant, and Lee later begs the southern states to join the Union and to become one nation again. Johnson finally surrenders to Sherman, leaving one major Confederate general who's out there yet to surrender, which he eventually does. And then the unthinkable happens. Lincoln is assassinated, and the nation wonders who will lead the reconstruction, most importantly, how to do it, how will this happen? The how question is answered on May 2nd that year, just a couple of weeks after Lincoln's assassination, at St. Paul's Church in Alexandria, Virginia. At the close of Sunday worship, Holy Communion is offered. People come to the altar to pray and receive communion, but there's a group of black people sitting in the back in their own section, and they do not participate. The war is over, and with this realization, an elderly black man gets up, he walks down the center aisle, kneels at the altar, and he prays, and there's this gasp. Because in that church, this simply wasn't done. And everyone, including the minister, has no idea what to do in that moment. And after a minute of awkward silence and confusion, an elderly white man with flowing white hair and, and beard rises. He has a commanding presence, a very confident stride, and he makes his way to the altar. And then he kneels down next to the black man and prays with him. The older white man with the commanding presence and confident stride was General Robert E. Lee, former leader of the Confederate Army. 
The point of the story is that putting aside everything else, one elderly black man and one elderly white man knelt in humility toward Christ and toward each other and silently forged a new way forward when nobody else was giving instructions. Sometimes it's when we kneel before the Lord when he makes everything clear. And not until that moment. And that church was radically changed from that day forward. And then here's the fourth discovery from Philippians 2. We are a community that is meant to reflect Jesus. So Paul takes verse 5 as kind of the transition verse. It says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And he goes into that beautiful doxology that describes Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be taken advantage of. But he continues to lower himself. He becomes obedient to the Father, even to the point of death. He takes on the nature of a servant. And then finally, the Lord lifts him up and tells us that every knee will bow before him. First, notice that Paul writes about the focus of this activity. It is in our relationships with one another that we're to have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. This means that our first responsibility is to mirror the attitude of Christ here toward each other. Then our second responsibility is to mirror that mindset of Christ to the world at large, which is also in view. But it starts here. It shows up in the way that we are to treat other Christians within the church community. And there's an opportunity for us in the midst of all the strife that's going on to start here with the way that we celebrate our unity, the way that we regard each other, and then to carry that practice out into where everything gets tested into our community. Do you know the world is longing to see true community in action today, almost like never before, because everything is so fractured right now. And just as Jesus humbled himself and made himself obedient to God in every way, Paul is letting us know that true Christians are known for patterning ourselves after Jesus. So one of the questions that ought to ring in our minds when we read this passage together is, how can you know, how can I know that you're really the, the real thing as a Christian? And Paul's answer would be, at least through this passage, where do you see yourself showing humility because you've chosen to mirror the life of Christ? goes beyond just the things that we say we believe about Jesus, but are we seeing his impact? Is he pr producing humility within us? How do you know whether or not your church community or the one that you might consider someday is truly a biblical community of Christ? It's not just about the statement of faith. It's not just about the theology. Are there signs both of faith and acknowledgement of Jesus along with signs of people serving each other in humility? just as Jesus humbled himself for our sake. So here's the idea. It's radical. When we are like-minded, humble-minded, and Christ-minded, we become a community that truly reflects Jesus to a hungry world. A couple questions to chew on, maybe in your small group this week. If the goal is for us to look and to act more like Jesus, here's the first question. Who is helping you do this? Are you part of a community that is helping others to look more like Jesus, or are you all on your own? 
The second question is, what is keeping you from taking the next step, moving from just attending to being a part of our community in a deeper way? I'm going to leave you with the questions, let them hang in the air, see what God does. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the study that we're in right now because it's challenging. There are some times when we wrestle with some of the ideas in Tim Keller's book that invade our safe spaces, our comfort zones, because the gospel sometimes invades our safe places and our comfort zones. Help us as we stretch. Even more, guide us as we seek to model the life of Jesus lived out through our flesh and blood, through our words, through our attitudes, to our neighbors, to our friends, to our co-workers, to our family members. Thank you for the guiding of your spirit in all this. Thank you that it's not just about our effort and, and trying to do it in our own strength. Thank you that you are the one who lives this gospel life through us. And we invite you to do that this week in Jesus' name. Thank you for making giving a part of your lifestyle and more and more the Congregation of North River understands this and values this. So this is one of the moments when we get to celebrate that. I realize some people give online and that's welcome, but for those of you who are prepared to do that today, our ushers are going to come forward and we've got one final song. Thank you. Thank you.